sermon uh, today will be, we will be in uh, Psalm 104, uh, verses 24 uh, through 35. Uh, Pastor Bill Smith will be giving uh, the sermon today. And so I'll give you a minute um, to get there if you are flipping um, to your through your Bibles using your phone. So I'll give you all just a second and then I'll read. The word of the Lord reads, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go to the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God. While I have been, may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you all on this first Sunday in Advent. Advent, as Gentry has said, is the name that we give to these four weeks in front of Christmas. And it's a time of waiting. It's a time that reminds us what it was like for God's people initially to wait for the Messiah. But it's also a time where we take now to remind ourselves that we also are waiting, that we're waiting for his return. So it's a double Advent in that sense. His first one that we remember, and his second one that we look forward to. Now, I have a question for you. Who do you look forward to in your life? In each of our lives, I suspect there are people on a continuum, and on one end of the continuum are people that we make plans with, because we'll just be honest, because we have to. There's an obligation, there's a sense of duty, these are the people who we owe something to, and so we make plans with them. There's another end of the continuum, however, the side where we want to be with these people, where we're happy to. This is the side where we're looking forward to connecting again. So in your life, think, who is it that's on that end? So when your phone buzzes and you see that text, you see that call, who gets you excited? Who are you happy to grab dinner with, happy to invite over? Who says, hey, let's get together, and you can't push them up in your calendar quickly enough? Think about those people. And when you think about those people, I think you'll discover a combination of things that make them on that side of the continuum rather than the other. And that combination is that these are the people that you know best who are invested in your best interests. You know them best, you know what they're like, and you know that they're 
actually for you, and so you want to be with those people. You can take two extremes here. Let's, let's suppose that a telemarketer calls you, and they offer you the deal of a lifetime. How much time do you give them? Or how much of your personal information do you send them? How much of your heart do they get? And if you're like me, the answer is none. You hang up on them. Let's suppose, however, that a close friend calls, and they say, hey, I was thinking about you, wondering how you are, wondering if you'd like to hang out sometime. You realize you don't hang up on them. Instead, suddenly you find that in your busy, overpacked world, there's time. <laughs> there's time that you didn't think you had, and you plug them in. Why? You know them. You know what they're like. You know what it's like to be around them, and you know that you are a better you when you're with them. That's very similar to what we want to spend the time of Advent doing as a church. We want to get to know Jesus in that kind of way, better than we already do. We want to see how we are better around him than without him, seeing what he's like so that our hearts actually want more of him. Now, one of the best ways, and you all know this, one of the best ways of getting to know somebody is to see them in different settings. So if you only ever see one of your friends at a football game when their team is winning, you're only going to see a very narrow slice of their personality. If you want to actually get to know them, you have to see them in a variety of settings for all of their character to have the chance to come out. And the same is true of God. And so this Advent, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to study what he's like in different settings. We're going to use the different settings that he breaks our history up into, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we're going to look at how he engages each one of those because the different setting calls forth something different from him. So this morning, we're thinking of Jesus in creation. Now, the first chapter of John tells us that as God, Jesus was fully engaged in creation. We read their very first verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. He was, with, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through him. So when you go back into the Old Testament and you see God creating, the things that are on God's heart and mind as he was creating are the things that are still on Jesus' mind for his creation. Those things are what he built into the world long ago, and it's what he continues to long to see happen here. And so we're going to unpack Psalm 104 today, and we want to see three things about Jesus. We want to see three things as Jesus engages creation. So first, we're going to see why he creates. What is it that he desires? What is it that he wants that moves him to create? Second, we're going to see what that desire produces. We're going to see how he expresses that desire in what he creates. And third, we're going to understand better how we ourselves can enter in to his desire. So why he creates what he creates and how we enter into that with him. First, why he creates. What is it that moves God to create everything that there is in the first place? And you realize that as I ask that question, maybe there's even a prior question that we should address, and that is, why does this matter? Why does what God did way back then matter to you and me now? It could almost, in some sense, sound like one of those how many angels dance on the head of a pin questions, one of those questions that gets the theologians really excited, but that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the rest of life. 
And so when I ask, what, what is it that moved God to create things, it, y- you can start to ask, does that really matter? Does what happened before time began have much to do with the issues of day-to-day living, of getting up, eating breakfast, getting started with your day? It does in this sense. Why things came to be tells you what gets baked in to the reality of what those things are. Say it a little bit differently. The why tells you what you should expect of the what. Why this world came to be tells you what to expect here, and that tells you then what you should and should not do based on the nature of this world in order to work well with the way that things are. How things came to be informs how you should then live in order to have a good life. And everybody, every people group that has ever been on this planet has some kind of working theory of the origins of the universe. Fancy word here is cosmology. Every people group has some cosmology, some explanation for how the universe got here that tells them then what is a reasonable way of living now. For instance, if you grew up in the ancient Near East when the Psalm 104 was written and you were reading the entire psalm, you would see there that it pits one cosmology against another. First half of the psalm that we didn't read, the first half is really wet. It's about how at the creation of the world, God covers it with water, verse 6. But then with a word from him, a rebuke, the waters fled, verse 7. They went to the place that he assigned them so that mountains and valleys appeared. And then verse 9, the water stayed where he told it to. Psalm goes on then to talk a little bit more about water and about how God uses water to benefit the earth, how it helps all of the creatures that God put there. And as you read as as a modern, you're starting to wonder, what's all this about water? Why, Why all the intense interest here? In the ancient Near East, there was a cosmology, common cosmology, that before the world was created, there was a huge conflict Conflict between the creator God and uh, the goddess of the sea, the goddess of the water. The sea represented the realm of chaos, and that chaos threatened to overwhelm and dominate everything else. And it's only by this fierce-pitched battle that the creator God is able to overcome chaos. They're relatively evenly matched. And so in that cosmology, the world is born what? It's born out of conflict. It's born against the backdrop of danger and threat to all meaningful, satisfying life everywhere. That was a common ancient Near East cosmology. You read Psalm 104, however, you get a very different picture. Here, God does not battle the sea. He creates the sea. The sea is under his control from the beginning. It listens to him when he speaks to it. There's no pitched battle anywhere. He's not afraid of it. He doesn't have to exert all of his power to keep it under control. Instead, he uses it to build and to bless all the rest of what he's doing. In God's cosmology, the world does not start in conflict. It starts in harmony. Now, can you see how that might impact how you live? If you live in a world where chaos and conflict are prior to creation, that's just something you expect. That's just a normal part of life. They're baked into the universe. They're expected, and they're embraced. And so just be a normal way of life to seek out enemies who could potentially disrupt life, to seek them out, and to what? To attack them. 
to create societies that were regularly and constantly at war because war is what? It's just normal. It's the only way to keep any kind of disruption in check. So in that world, it's normal to live at war, and it's normal to expect that any kind of stability is at best temporary. So while you're busy playing the game of life, you realize that the deck's been stacked against you. And it's only a matter of time before chaos intrudes, targets you, chaos in the form of someone or someone that rises up then to take you down. That would just be a normal way of living in that world. We don't have to just think about ancient cosmologies, though. Let's bring it into the present. You realize that our modern cosmology, our modern theory of how things came to be, produces similar results, even though it's rejected a pantheon of gods and goddesses. What's the modern origin story? That there is no purpose to the universe, but that the world and life just happen to happen. They happen to come out of a bunch of random chance events, events that are not guided by any personal being, but by impersonal natural laws. And so you and I live in a world where nothing really matters because nothing can matter. A world without a creator is meaningless. It has no meaning. And so everything that happens in that world has no meaning either. And since there is no meaning, there's nothing that you could say is good to do or bad to do. Nothing good to want or bad to want because there is no good or bad in a meaningless world. So in the modern cosmology, the only criteria is what? It, it's existence, survival. Those things that exist are doing what the universe does. It exists, they exist. Those that don't exist are not doing what the universe does. So the question is not, what is the good life? Because good is meaningless. The question is, are you existing? And the answer is, only if you're strong enough to do that. That it really is all about the survival of the fittest. That it doesn't matter the kinds of things that you think or the things that you value or the kind of character you have. That what matters is simply, are you eating today? Or are you being eaten? And so in that kind of a world, it makes sense then to do what? To do whatever you can get away with. Because in the end, it doesn't really matter what you do. Because in that world, nothing matters. Now, just as an aside, we all know that's not true. And I don't mean the people in this room. I mean everybody in this world knows that that's not true. That is where the theory leads. But we live instinctively counter to that theory. And everyone does. We all know that it matters very much what we do in this world. It's why we care about things like justice. It's why so many people watch so carefully the recent trials over the last couple of weeks to see where the outcome's going to be. Do the outcomes align with what we think they should be? Now, if we really did live in a meaningless world, it doesn't matter what those verdicts were. The only thing that would matter is who won, who was most powerful, Nobody would care about who was less powerful. For that matter, in a world where only the strong survive, we wouldn't have trials that cared about someone who didn't survive. We would simply applaud the stronger person and try to get on their good side. And none of us believe that that's the way the world is. And so what we do have trials in our world. We care that the strong not use their power in a way that isn't good that they not use their power to take advantage of someone with less power. 
Now, why is that? The cynic might say, well, because we're not in power and we don't want to be taken advantage of, so we work to curb those who are in power to give ourselves a chance. You can kind of see something to that. But think about it for a moment. Is that really what matters to you over this last week, over this past year? That you had no concern, no compassion for anyone who'd been harmed, but that you were simply hoping for certain verdicts and outcomes so that you would personally benefit. Does that fit what you know of yourself? Does it fit what you know of other people? Or is there something more than that? Isn't it true that you and your neighbors have a nagging sense that there is right and wrong? That people should not do something simply because they can get away with it? Where do you get that sense in a world that has no meaning, has no morality built into it? See, this is where our modern cosmology does not explain what we know about what it means to be human. And when that's the case, what do you do? Well, if you have any intellectual integrity, you question the cosmology. You wonder if it's really as true as it sounds. You wonder if maybe it sounds so plausible to our ears because we've heard it. We've heard it as long as the people in the ancient Near East heard that chaos came before creation. You wonder if you believe it, not because it's true, but because you've heard it so often. Here's one way to enter into the world around you. When you find something in human beings that refuses to go away, something that you should not expect to find in them, given what you've been told of how humans got came to be here, something like a concern for right and wrong, maybe it's time then to ask if there's not a better theory of how we came to be here. That's what Scripture is offering you. It's offering it to both the people in the ancient Near East, it's offering to us in our modern world a different understanding that says that the world was made by a personal being, a being who has certain likes and certain dislikes that he built into his world. He built his values and his desires not only into the world in general, he built them into you specifically. One of the things that you find that drives him, that moves him, is not anticipated by the worldly cosmologies. What moves God to create is joy. You go through the majority of this psalm that talks about all the places that God made, talks about how he filled them with living beings, talked about how he is intimately involved with their day-to-day -day affairs. You come down all after all of that to verse 31, and you learn there that may the Lord rejoice in his works. That's the why. The why behind all that God has done and is doing in the world. It's for joy. It's for his joy. It's that he may rejoice in all that he has done. God does not create or get involved in this world out of some internal need, some deficiency in himself. He's not trying to think better of himself and give himself reasons for thinking good of himself by making something. But he's also not creating to take something that's been all messed up and make it right. Instead, he creates the world and everything that there is before sin enters the picture. He creates it out of nothing that was there before. And he does it simply for the fun of doing it. He does it for the sheer enjoyment of it, for the pleasure of it. 
That is what is at the heart of the universe. It's built for joy. It's built by a God who wants to rejoice in all of it. It's built by a God of joy. And that helps you then make sense of what you find in human beings, about the joy that you experience at different times. You ever wondered about joy? About where it comes from? About why we experience certain things as joyful? See, in the modern world that just accidentally happened to come together, joy doesn't make any sense. Why, why should we be extra happy at times? Why should we take pleasure in things that have absolutely nothing to do with us? You ever had that experience? You've been out in nature and something moves you. Something that you did not make, something that doesn't have any connection to you, doesn't even know you exist. A sunrise. An ocean view. Tree leaves changing in the fall. You go outside, somebody, you find a cobweb covered in dew, something that makes you smile. It makes you pause whatever you were doing at that moment. You, ha you have a little gasp. You feel this tug inside of you. If you feel like you just have to share this with somebody or, or you're going to burst. Where does that come from? That inner sense that there is something really special here that moves you. Where does that come from if the world is just accidental? If nothing is special because everything's an accident. How do you explain joy? How do you explain your feelings of being moved by something that doesn't connect to your daily survival? That isn't connected to you? Or maybe you've had this experience. You ever had a meal that was so good that you took pleasure in it? I don't mean the various dishes that you tasted. I mean the entire experience, that the whole thing was special, the whole thing gave you joy. Or have you ever been in a conversation with someone, found that you, you had a connection, and, and you could just keep talking for hours and hours and hours together, taking pleasure in each other's company, and you don't even notice that time passed? You ever had those experiences, those tastes of joy? Somebody might ask, you know, well, Bill, how, how do you know that's joy? Because there's something there that you can't capture, you can't hold, and you can't manufacture. There's some feeling that you can't make happen on demand. Just try it sometime. Try to say, I'm now going to have a joyful moment. And see how that works out. Why can't you do that? It's because the feeling is not connected to the thing itself, and you can't make them connected. Make the mistake of equating food with joy and you will eat more and enjoy less. Or go climb a mountain to find joy. Make that your purpose. You'll discover joy does not show up just because you cross a certain elevation or you stand and have a certain view. Or try to turn a person into a means of getting joy. Insist that she excite you. That he move the world for you. Try to do that and you'll drain all the life out of that relationship. You'll start to think, maybe I ought to find somebody else, or after a while you just give up and say, ah, it's, it's just all an illusion. Why does that happen? How can one experience produce something inside of you that is so strong, that, that unexpected stabbing in your heart, that piercing, that, that opening up of the world so it feels like eternity is flooding in and you can't hold it all? How can you have that experience once but not have it repeated when you try it again. 
It's because what you're tapping into is not connected to that thing or to that person. It's connected to something else. That experience was a taste of something greater, something that is outside and beyond this world, something that existed before the world began, something that was the reason for the world beginning. You can still find that here in these small doses, unexpected. Doses that are very real, though. Doses that aren't meant to satisfy you as much as they're meant to whet your appetite for more. They're supposed to draw you on to something that will satisfy you. That joy that you experience is tied back to the one who made you. And it's his voice that you hear calling through that experience of joy. And you'll only understand it within his cosmology, within his explanation for why anything exists. Think about those other ones for a moment. Joy in a modern random cosmology, it makes no sense. There's no good reason for it. It's a fiction. We make up this explanation to explain emotions that we have for no reason. It's a reason that we give for something that has no reason to exist in the first place kind of makes you wonder why we spend so much time trying to explain something that has no real meaning. Joy in a modern cosmology makes no sense. Joy in an ancient cosmology can't be relied on. It's always in jeopardy. Chaos and struggle, those are the real actors in that drama. They can overwhelm joy at any moment. It's not enduring. Why? Because it's not the most ultimate thing. But joy in a universe built for joy by a joy-filled God has real substance. It's solid because it partakes of the nature of the universe and it leads you to the God of all joy. That's why when Jesus is born, the angels announce, joy is here. They appear to a group of shepherds in Luke chapter 2 and they say to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Here's good news for all people. Good news of great joy. Finally, the joyful God who creates out of joy for joy is here. That's what we celebrate. That's point one, why God creates for joy. Point two, what does he create that expresses his kind of joy? Three things in this psalm that tell you about what gives God joy. There's an abundance of life. There's an enjoyment of life. And he loves to fill living beings with a good life. First, an abundance of life. Verse 24, the earth is full of your creatures. Verse 25, the sea teems with creatures innumerable. Everywhere you look, God makes so many living things, you can't count them. Now, we grow up in that world, and so we get kind of used to there being this endless number of lives all around us. But you realize that a different God could have taken joy in a world that had no living creatures in it, one that was just rocks and minerals. Or there could have been a God who only took joy in vegetation, one where a world in which you only heard the wind in the trees or rivers flowing, rain falling, that would be it. That's not our God. 
our God is not interested in a quiet universe. He's interested in one that has a lot of life in it and a lot of sound. He's not worried that life is going to deplete the resources that he has built into the world. Instead, he wants a world that is brimming with life because only that kind of world reflects the amount of overwhelming life that is in him. Our God is a God who rejoices in a lot of life. His kind of joy requires an abundance of life, and it also requires that his beings enjoy their lives. And so he creates things for them to enjoy. Verse 15, we didn't read it, but it tells us that God gives wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. He's interested in people enjoying the lives that he gives them, in being able to enjoy the lives that he gives them. It's not just human creatures that he wants to enjoy their lives. It's all of his creatures. In the sea, verse 26, he creates Leviathan. That's kind of like some huge sea-dwelling creature. Think like a whale here. He forms Leviathan for what? Verse 26, to play in the sea. What is the sea? It's this huge water park that God made. And then he creates a being <laughs> that can play in that space. So when the sea creatures swim and they dive and they breach and they're not hunting, they're not looking for a mate, when they're playing, God takes joy. When the hawks ride on thermals way high up and they're not hunting, God takes joy. When human beings go for hikes when they don't have to or they throw and kick a ball around, God takes joy. When God's creatures do something for no other reason than to play in the environment he built for them, then God rejoices. It's not some cosmic killjoy, someone with a long face who's always grumbling, who can't stand to see anybody else having a good time. God creates with joy, which means that others then will have joy. What does God rejoice in? God rejoices in his creatures rejoicing in the lives that he gave them. God's kind of joy requires an abundance of life and an enjoyment of that life, and it requires filling his creatures with what they need in order to have a good life. All of his creatures depend on him, verse 27, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Just focus on those two words. They are filled, they're satisfied, they have everything that they need, couldn't have any more, and they are filled with good things. God could have designed a world in which there are the basic necessities of life. That would be an, have been grace, gracious to us. But he could have given us the basic necessities of life that would be kind of bland, kind of gray, and he doesn't do that. He creates a world that is packed with flavors, fa flavors to sample, textures to chew on, colors, aromas, things that we don't need for nourishment but things that we like, things that we can combine in even more ways to increase our enjoyment of being filled. God rejoices in filling you with good things. This is a good God. This is the kind of God that you want to have create you. He loves life. He loves your life. He wants you to have a life that you enjoy, and he will make a life for you to live in that will satisfy you with good things. And those three things are exactly what you see in the, on the heart and in the life of Christ while he was here on this earth. 
they are still on the heart and mind of God for this world. Remember when Jesus went to a wedding? They ran out of wine. And Jesus made what? He made way too much wine for them. The estimates are somewhere between 120, 180 gallons of wine. And it was better than the good stuff they'd already been drinking. Jesus is the one who creates wine to gladden people's hearts. He creates for joy. And Jesus had no trouble enjoying those things himself. He had to confront people one time by saying to them, Matthew chapter 11, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Apparently, Jesus didn't mind engaging, enjoying things on this earth. The accusation of being a drunkard and a glutton was wrong, but you can't accuse a teetotaler of being a drunkard. It doesn't work. Jesus had no problem eating and drinking, enjoying the good things that he built into his world. He enjoyed himself, and he was somebody that people liked having around. He was enjoyable. Tax collectors and sinners, people who were not high society, not trying to earn points with anyone, they liked being around him when they didn't have to be. Read his life. The disciples were with him for at least three years, and you never get the sense that they hated that, that he was so unpleasant, so critical, so miserable to be around that there were days when they just couldn't stand him. You never get a hint of anything like that. He had other friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus welcomed him into his house into their house. He said strong things a lot of the time, but people flocked to him and they stayed with him. They wanted to be with him. He was a likable person, an enjoyable person. He created environments that people enjoyed. And he took care of people in those environments. We studied a couple weeks back how he fed over 5,000 men at one point and 4,000 people another time. Remember the commentary in both of those passages? Both times we're told that they all ate and were satisfied. He opened his hands and filled people with good things. Not just a few people, an abundance of people, abundance of life. Jesus likes his world full of people. Told others uh, in Matthew 18 that in the future many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will come. You say, well, how many is many? Revelation describes his people in chapter 7 as being a great multitude that no one could number. From every tribe, from, excuse me, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. A multitude that no one could number. That's the kind of abundant life that Jesus wants to surround himself with for all eternity. That's his reality that he intends to create. An abundant people that you can't begin to count, enjoying themselves fully satisfied by him with good things. That's what makes the heart of Jesus rejoice. It's why he built the universe. It's what he's still working on to bring about in this world. So then point three. How do you and I enter into all this joy? It's there for you. It's something that is yours by right because God created you. 
He created you for joy. How do you enter into joy? First, you meditate on all his many works. Verse 34. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. You meditate on the things that bring God joy. You meditate on his works of joy, on all that he does. And you allow yourself to meditate on how you're a part of all of that, that you are one of his works that he wants to rejoice in. And you meditate that God, in his wisdom, made you for joy. That his wisdom made a place for you to enjoy. That his wisdom makes sure that you have all that you need for joy. You meditate on that. You meditate on God's incredible interest and care for you. Care that tells you he is safe to rely on. That he only has good intentions for you. You meditate on what is true and you let what is true push out the things that you meditate on that rob you of joy. You realize that every single one of us meditates on something all day long. We all think about certain things and we all don't think about certain other things. And so there are some things that we turn over and over and over and over in our minds. We spend countless hours thinking about them in a day. That's what meditation is. may not be intentional, but it's meditating. And what you meditate on will either lead you to joy or it will lead you to something else. Lead you to what? To, to fear, anxiety, anger, discouragement, wanting to check out. Your meditations will go in one of those two directions, to joy or to something else. And sadly, even though you and I were made for joy, we know how easy it is to meditate on things that bring us non-joy. There are days when I will wake up, I pull out my phone and I scan the news. And immediately in that moment, I start meditating. Not on a God who creates for joy and goodness, but I start meditating on a world that is harsh, cruel, mean-spirited, cold. And I turn those things over and over and over in my mind. And I focus on them as though they are the most real, the most substantial part of this world. Now, on those days, do you think that I roll out of bed with joy? I can't. Because my meditations have nothing to do with what God created this world for or with how he works in it now. I can't have joy with these other meditations. And you can't either. You and I will meditate on something. But we have to train ourselves to meditate on the right things. We have to focus our thoughts on what moves God to create, on what moves God to stay engaged in creation. We have to meditate on what brings him joy. That's not saying that we pretend the bad stuff isn't there. But a meditation on what brings God joy is a meditation that acknowledges that what God started was not something bad. And we're acknowledging that what is bad is not most ultimate. And we're acknowledging that God breaks through the bad where it has not overwhelmed him, it's not overwhelmed his purpose. If you want joy, you have to take charge of your mind. It's what the psalmist tells himself to do. Verse 35, bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to? 
He's talking to himself. He's urging his soul in a particular direction. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is a very conscious activity on his part. It's something that he chooses to do. It's something that he has to make himself do, to meditate on the right stuff. So he enters into joy with God. You have to do the same thing too. You have to escape the confines of all the ugly narratives that are in our modern world, that are in our modern thought worlds and our modern cosmologies. You have to train yourself to see what is true of this world from God's perspective. You have to meditate on it. And only then will you have joy. So first, you meditate on what God meditates on, his many works of joy. And second, you pray for an end to evil. You pray, verse 35, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. It's a hard thing to pray for. But what does it mean? It means that you're praying for an end to evil. You are praying that God's wonderful, joyful creation won't be spoiled any longer. And so you pray that sinners who oppose a joyful God, sinners who have an agenda in mind other than joy, you pray that they would be consumed from the earth. This is part of what it means to join and line up with God. You pray that those who insist on bringing non-joy into God's world be no more. You pray that, and it gives you an immediate problem. Because what if you're like me? What if you've already created non-joy in a joyful God's world with your meditations? What if you've been meditating on things that lead away from joy? What if you are one of those people who's rejected joy? It's the whole reason God gave you life in the first place, to embrace joy. If you reject that, you give him no reason to rejoice in you. You give him reason only to rejoice in removing you. So what do you do if that's you, if you're me? Why shouldn't God answer your prayer to consume the sinners of the earth by consuming you? It's only because of Jesus, this one that we wait for. Jesus, who creates and sustains his creation, also rescues it. Jesus just cares too much about this world to let it go. And so he rescues it. Want to take a guess at what drives him to rescue it? At what drives him to rescue you? It's joy, of course. Hebrews chapter 12, God's people need a model for how do we live out our faith in this dark, joyless world, and that model is Christ. So verse 2, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not enjoy the cross, but he looked past the cross to what it would bring him. And that future, that reality, that brought him joy. Joy that was so great that he was able to endure the cross. He looked past the pain, past the shame, to you because he wanted you. And not just you individually, he wanted a whole lot of you. 
That's why he told the disciples the night before he died that his blood would be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That in going to the cross, he would consume the sin of many people. He would save an abundance of lives so that many sinners, many lives, would not be consumed from the earth. So that there would be many lives, many former sinners, living with him forever in a joy-filled world. That brought him joy, and that took him to the cross. Meditate on that. Meditate on your place in that, your place in God's joy. Meditate on that, and you will rejoice in this joyful God who creates you in joy for joy so that he can then rejoice in you. Lord God, we have no idea what any of that means. We live in a dark world that has little tiny tastes of what just surges inside of you. Lord, move us a little closer to where you are. Move us to see a little bit who you are so that we can enter into the joy that you have. Lord, we know that you are not miserable. We know that you are not sad. We know, Lord, that you are joy-filled, and we want to be your joyful people surrounding you at your throne. Lord, bring that home to us in a, in a, in a very real way so that we can live in that joy today. In Jesus' name, amen.